Today's reading is from Ecclesiastes 9, 1 through 10. This is the NIV translation. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As is the good, so is the sinner, and he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of men are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Go eat your bread in joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white, let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. There is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. This is the word of the Lord. Go ahead and find a a Bible if you have one in front of you in the rack or you brought one with you and make your way to the book of Ecclesiastes. The passage we just read a moment ago, chapter 9. As a young uh, theology student at Yale University, a man named Jonathan Edwards was captivated by an overwhelming sense of the holiness, the beauty, the glory, the intoxicating joy of God. He wasn't just taken up by his academic studies. He was taken up in delight and enjoyment of God himself and what he's done. And that delight moved Edwards at the age of 19 to draw up a list of 70 spiritual resolutions to live by. He begins stating, being sensible that I am unable to do anything without God's help, I do humbly entreat him by his grace to enable me to keep these resolutions so far as they are agreeable to his will for Christ's sake. And he begins with the first one, resolved that I will do whatsoever I think to be most to God's glory and my own good, profit, and pleasure in the whole of my duration without any consideration of the time. It continues, resolved never to lose one moment of time, but improve it in the most profitable way I possibly can. Resolved to think much on all occasions of my own dying, and of the common circumstances which attend death. Resolved 
to live with all my might while I do live. One author describes in mapping out his resolutions, Jonathan realized before turning 20 what it takes many people a lifetime to discover that living for God matters more than anything else. Edwards understood that life was a gift. That life is a gift. And there are three basic ways you can treat a gift when somebody gives you one, whether it's Christmas or birthday or whatever. First, you can trash it. You can, you know, disregard its value and just uh, either dispose of it uh, whether by just leaving it in the box and neglecting it or taking it out and, and treating it carelessly and destroying it. You can trash a gift. Another response is that you can treasure that gift in, in terms of setting it aside as a trophy never to be touched or, or never to be used, lest it be damaged in some way. We all have stuff in our homes like this, you know, plates you never eat on. You know, baseballs you never play catch with because somebody's name is, is signed on that. We, we make them a trophy. There's a third way you can treat a gift, though, and that's to take it out of the box and take it for a spin. To use it, to do with it what it was intended for. In the case of life, our life, to bring glory and honor to God through the gospel of Jesus. Through the good news of what God has done to establish his kingdom and deal with our sin through the life, death, and resurrection of his son, Jesus. Edwards' gospel-fueled passion to make the most of every moment of life is a beautiful example of what our passage is calling us to this morning in Ecclesiastes 9, 1 through 10. That because our future is secure in God's hand, we can, in spite of our looming death, enjoy and make the most of whatever days God gives us. Because if we are in Christ, our future is secure in God's hand. We can, despite death, make the most of life. Enjoy whatever days God gives us for his sake and for the sake of his gospel. So that's where we're going this morning. Let's pray together. Lord, we do thank you for the gift of life. We thank you for the gift of new life in you that we celebrated this morning with baptism. We pray, God, that as we look into this passage, that your spirit, who is the giver of life to these dry bones, would open our eyes, would give light to our eyes, to to see you for who you are, and would help us to, to make the most of the days you give us, to cherish this gift and use it for what you've given it for, and that is to honor you. So we pray that you'd meet us this morning in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you're just joining us, we've been in the book of Ecclesiastes for a few months now, uh, following the preacher, as he calls himself, probably the ancient King Solomon, we're not 100% sure, uh, but following this preacher as he explores every facet of life under the sun, looking for some, you know, something he can hold on to, make sense of, put his, his investment in, uh, and find lasting gain and significance. He's, he's investigating the things that you and I see and touch and taste every day and saying, okay, under the sun, set aside God for a moment, is there anything in this world that really matters and really lasts or makes sense? And uh, as the graphic on the front of your worship folder illustrates, so far everything he's found is smoke. 
It's vapor. It's vanity of vanities, as he calls it over and over again. Work, wealth, pleasure, knowledge, every other dream that disappoints. They don't last, they don't satisfy, and they don't ultimately make much sense. So that's the book so far, in a nutshell. And one of the sharper realizations that he's made in his study is how death messes everything up. Pretty much every chapter of this book so far has had something to say about death. He just keeps touching on it over and over again. While God's design for his people was life and blessing in his presence, we all, like Adam in the beginning, have plotted and schemed God's overthrow to knock him off his throne, put ourselves in his place, and run the world the way we think it should be run. That's kind of, you know, that's been our goal. That's what the Bible calls sin or treachery or treason against the king of heaven. And the result of that is death. And as we saw last week, no one, king or pauper, has power over the day of death. The first six verses of this chapter are going to make the same point. They're going to remind us once again the proven fact that no one escapes death. Take a look at verses 2 and 3 with me. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As is the good, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to them all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that, they go to the dead. Now, there's a cheery summary of human existence for you. You know, One of the bleakest pictures we've found in this book so far, which is saying a lot. Death is an impartial foe. Death is an impartial foe. And God's people, who are described in verse 1 as the righteous here, are no exception to that. You know, he makes this point by comparing seven sets of opposites. One good, one bad, both dead, eventually. That's how he makes his point. Because ultimately, as verse 3 reminds us, all of us have contributed to the problem. The human heart is full of evil. It's characterized by madness. In other words, stupid sin. Madness. All our days. And then after that we die. That's the story of fallen humanity in a nutshell. Life under the sun. And that sun will eventually set on every single person here and whoever lives. Now, frankly... All this talk of death in a book like Ecclesiastes can begin to wear on you after a while. Um, it can begin to get a little unnerving and even depressing. You know, whereas um, so much of our world spends its time trying to evade and avoid death, a lot of us live with death's reality every single day. We're reminded by the empty plate at our table. We're reminded by the stack of parking garage tickets from Newton Wellesley or Brigham and Women's or Mass General, all of those trips in and out of the city, and then it's done. And so death, death casts a shadow over life. 
And it's a shadow that clouds every special occasion for some of us, every relationship, even our day-to-day work, threatening to rob us of every last drop of joy in this life. But the preacher is not morbidly obsessed with this subject, nor is he wringing his hands in worry or fear, or even just complaining and whining. He's talking about death because he wants to help God's people, in whom he calls the righteous and the wise. He wants to help them know how they should live before God despite death. His main interest here is not the curse of death, but the gift of life. The gift of life and what we do with it. Look at verse 1 with me. But all this I laid to heart, all that he's been studying, I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know, both are before him. So in his study of life under the sun, one of the observations he's made, and he said this over and over again, is that God controls the outcome of our lives. The righteous and the wise, as he puts it in verse 1, God's people are in his hand. We are in God's hand. The only problem from his vantage point, looking at things under the sun, and in terms of trying to make decisions based on what he can actually see with his own eyes, the only problem is that when we look at our circumstances or the outcome of our lives, it's not transparently clear whether God's hand is for us or against us in terms of how life goes each day. That's what he's talking about in the second half of verse 1. As the NIV translation puts it, no man knows whether love or hate awaits him. Now some suggest that the love and hate there is talking about human love, what kind of experience we'll have, as we see in verse 6. But the context in this verse is speaking of what God does with those whom he holds in his hand. Will they find love from God at the end of their days? Mercy, salvation, deliverance. Or will they find hate? In other words, judgment and condemnation for their sin. The preacher's point is that if we try to answer that question based on how life goes today, whether great or terribly, we're going to be confused. We're going to be confused. We've seen multiple times in this book that in a broken, fallen world such as we live in, things don't always work the way they should. Sometimes, you know, good days are not necessarily evidence of God's favor. You know, sometimes the wicked prosper in their wickedness. That looks like God's favor, but in the end they will face judgment. Sometimes uh, the righteous suffer much. And so bad days aren't necessarily evidence of God's anger either. And both the righteous and the wicked face the same destination, the grave. So if you're trying to figure out where you're at with God, how life goes today is not going to tell you very much. Okay? By ourselves and our circumstances, we cannot tell what posture God's hand is in, whether it's for us or against us. The shadow of death makes us fear very often that it's against us. And we're just waiting for the shoe to drop. But by faith, by faith we can tell and we can be confident what posture God's hand is in. That it is for us 
if our faith is in Jesus Christ. So left to ourselves, in our sin, in our disobedience, God's hand is against us. You know, we have committed treason against the King of Heaven. That's the common position of all humanity. Left to ourselves, that's how it is. But Christ came to rescue us from God's holy anger against our sin by living for us the life that we couldn't live, by reuniting us to God, His Father, by dying for us the death we deserve to die in punishment for our sin. Christ lived that life, died that death for us to bring us near to the God that we turned our back on, even though we don't deserve it. And he offers this life, this joy, this peace and reconciliation with the creator of the universe. He offers that to us through faith, through trusting in the finished work of Jesus, that he is enough, that he did pay it all. We don't have to try harder to make it up to God. Jesus is enough. And if we are in Christ, we can rest in that finished work. We can rest in the knowledge and the confidence that we are secure in God's hand. This is how Jesus himself puts it in John 10. If our hope is in Christ, we will never perish and no one will snatch us out of his hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Did you hear that? If you are in Christ, no one can snatch you out of God's hand. You are secure. Your greatest need and your greatest problem in life have been decisively dealt with. That frees us to live. Listen to how the Heidelberg Catechism summarizes the hope that we have in Jesus. It starts by asking the question, what is your only comfort in life and death? Here's the answer it gives. That I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood. He has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. Isn't that a beautiful summary of what Christ has done for sinners like us? Isn't that amazing? And it's that hope that frees us and guards us and keeps us so that we can live out our days on earth for God. God is not finished with us. If your heart is beating and you are in this room right now alive, God is not done with you. You are still living, therefore you still have hope. And the preacher reminds us of that in a somewhat backhanded way in verses 4 through 6. Look at that with me. So we're all going to the grave, but he who is joined with all the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. 
They have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. When the gift of life expires and we die, and our days on earth are over, we will have lost our window for contributing to what God is doing on this earth for the sake of his kingdom. We look forward to the joy of sharing in his new creation to come. But we only have one shot at this life. After that, our knowledge, all the books you've spent your time reading, all of the conferences you've gone to, all of the small group studies and whatever else you've done will no longer be useful for contributing to the advance of God's kingdom on this earth. So the implication is that we need to make the most of life while we yet live. As the preacher puts it in a a not-so-encouraging way, a living dog. And by that, he does not mean a nice little pet. Dogs were the scavenging, scum-eating street dogs back in the ancient world. A living dog is better than a dead lion. You know, a lion may be royal, but I'll take a living dog over that dead lion. You at least have hope. Now, in verse 5, you know, the living have hope because they know they're going to die. What kind of hope is that? Um, but think about just a couple chapters ago in chapter 7, verse 2. It's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind and the living will lay it to heart. Knowing that our death is imminent helps us focus on what really matters in life. And if we combine that knowledge with the confidence that our future is secure in God's hands, then we need to ask the question, what are we doing with the gift of life? How are we spending it? Are we treating it like trash? Neglecting all that God has given us? Or or wasting it away in carelessness and sin? Are we treating it like a trophy? It's too precious to do anything with, and so we just have to bury it and leave it there? Or are we taking it out for a spin? Are we making the most of every day for Jesus? And what does that look like if that's what we're called to do? That's what verses 7 to 10 help us understand. Look with me at, at, at verses 7 through 10. Go, eat your bread in joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. That that imagery there is the opposite of sackcloth and ashes in the Old Testament. When you're mourning and grieving, you put on sackcloth, you rub ashes on your forehead. This is saying, put on your white garments, let the oil be flowing on your head. These are party clothes, in other words. Let your garments always be white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he's given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there's no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in the grave, in Sheol, the place of the dead to which you are going. When death comes, again, that's the end of our chance to contribute to God's work under the sun. So what does it look to live with all our might while we still live? What we see here is that God wants us to make the most of the natural rhythms of our lives. 
You know, sometimes we think that if I'm going to live my life in a way that matters for God and the gospel, I have to add a whole bunch of spiritual stuff and activities to my already overcrowded life. You know, part of our vision as this congregation is to live as missionaries in New England. So you mean I've got to take on a whole second world uh, on top of my already busy life? Uh, how can I do that when I'm working? I'm trying to raise a family. I have all this church stuff to go to. And so we feel like it means adding a bunch. But the things we see in these verses that he wants us to, to enjoy are, are not something we add, but something we naturally spend our days doing every single day. We eat and we drink every day, three times a day. We celebrate and we party. You know, birthday parties, anniversaries, weddings, football games, holidays. We find lots of reasons to get together and have fun and party. We had two birthday parties yesterday that we were invited to. It was great. You know, we spend time with our spouses, our families, and our friends every day in relationship. We spend 40 plus hours a week at work in our jobs. This is normal life. These are our natural rhythms that he's talking about. And this is what he wants us to enjoy and make the most of for the sake of God and his gospel. So what does that look like? Well, first, we enjoy God's good provision, according to verses 7 and 8. Food, drink, and celebration. Now, some of us read this verse and we get a little bit nervous. You know, Eat your bread and joy, drink your wine with a merry heart, put on your party clothes. I mean, that sounds like the preacher is kind of telling us to you know, go out and party and live it up in a frivolous way since you're going to die anyway type thing. Well, that's not what he's saying. Because he says here, God has already approved what you do. He's not talking about rebellion and living it up in an unholy way. He's talking about worship. He's talking about enjoying the natural rhythms of life in a God-glorifying way, a way that makes much of him. Worship celebrating, treating God with honor by receiving those things from Him as a gift. God's the one who, in Psalm 104, brings forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make His face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. We receive these things with thanksgiving. We honor God by doing so. Now again, some of us still, it's like, okay, if we actually enjoy life, doesn't that feel... I mean, this is, we're at war. I should be serious here. Who, who has time to enjoy these kinds of things? We feel like we're not being very spiritual if we do that. And again, we talked a little bit about this last week. Yes, we're at war. And the, the forces of evil are pressing hard against the people of God and His gospel. But the victory's already been won. And we can rejoice in advance of that victory that Christ has already won the battle. There's work to do, but we celebrate. And frankly, there's nothing spiritual about trashing God's gifts. Think about that. You know, we receive these good things and we feel guilty if God gives us a gift. There's nothing spiritual or holy about asceticism or trashing God's gifts. I've used this illustration before, but when, when you give your child a gift at Christmas, what do you want them to do with it? Leave it in the corner? Never open it up? Kind of open it up, yawn, 
go do something. No, you want them to open it up and play with it and have fun. You want them to enjoy your gift. Are you offended if they enjoy your gift? No, you'd be offended if they didn't. You gave it to them out of love. Now, if they take that gift and they begin to obsess over it, they begin to ignore you, they can't hear your voice anymore because they're so into this gift and they can no longer live without it, that's not what you wanted either, is it? No, you want them to enjoy the gift. You don't want them to worship it. Okay? God wants us to enjoy life. He doesn't want us to worship the good things he gives us, which means we need to be willing to part with them. We need to be willing to share them. But he wants us to enjoy them and to celebrate these things. If you think about it, nobody has more reason for celebration than Christians. Nobody has more reason to throw a great party than the people of God in Christ. Think of all that we have in Christ. We live forever. We've got this cloud of death hanging over us. We get to live forever. That's amazing. Think, our sins are forgiven by the God and creator of the universe. That's huge. That's amazing. We've been adopted into his family, even though we were rebels against him. We should party over that. We, God promises that we're going to inherit the whole world in the new creation. You know, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? We have so much to celebrate as the people of God in Christ. We should throw the best parties. And if our celebration is not just for us, but for God's sake and the sake of his gospel, then we need to be inviting others to come join in to that celebration. To join in, share these good meals with us. So that they too can see the glory and goodness and provision of God. I was at a conference this weekend and one of the teachers was making this point. We eat an average of 21 meals in a week. What, it, what would it look like if everyone in this room just shared one of those meals with someone who does not yet know Jesus? We're not adding anything to our schedule. You're going to eat anyway. What if you were to share that meal with someone who doesn't know the Lord yet? How many birthday parties, football game parties, holidays do we celebrate over and over? What if we were to invite others in on those parties? What if we were to go with them to their celebrations? That's a natural rhythm of life, and it's a natural place where we can rub shoulders with those who do not yet know the greatest joy and the greatest thing worth celebrating, and that's Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean that we're only honoring God when we, you know, eat with non-Christians and every other meal is a waste of life. You know, if it's good and it's from the Lord, and you receive it with thanksgiving, that's worship. But as the people of God in Christ, to whom he has given so much, to whom he's going to give everything, do we not want to share that? Do we not want others to share in that joy and celebration, not just the food, but our Savior? I'm asking these questions in my own heart as I wrestle with what am I doing with my time, my days? 
So we make the most of our days by enjoying God's good provision and finding occasion to enjoy that with others who don't yet know Christ. Second, we see in verse 9, we make the most of our days by enjoying our marriage relationship and other relationships in general. Relating to people, interacting with your spouse, with your kids, with your friends. Again, it's something we naturally do every single day. That's a normal rhythm of life. God wants us to enjoy those relationships. They are a gift. Now, sadly, some of us tend to trash them. We trash our relationships. We don't realize the value of the gift we've been given. And so we ignore our parents or we we neglect or berate our, our children or our spouse. And then just as sadly, some of us turn those relationships into a trophy. You know, whether it's you know, letting our lives revolve around our children in such a way that you know, their performance and, and their achievement, uh, we're, we're revolving our lives around that, running frantically from one thing to the next because we're trying to find our salvation and theirs in what they accomplish and become in life. Or we wring our hands nervously trying to keep them in the box, afraid that if we take them out, they'll get a scratch. Now, as parents, we're called by God to shepherd our children. And shepherding, shepherds carry a big stick. And that stick is not just to rescue the sheep, it's to beat off the wolves. So there is a calling to protect, to, sh- to safeguard, to shield our children. But that's part of it. We're also called to equip them and prepare them to live as servants of God. And that's not always as safe as some of us wish it was. Are we preparing them to lay their lives down for Jesus? So we can trash our relationships and we can kind of turn them into a trophy. but Or else we can take them out of the box and we can do with them what God made them to be. We can live for his sake. And Solomon's main emphasis here is on marriage. Enjoying your spouse. How do we make the most of our marriages for God and his gospel? What does it look like? Um, I think it looks like cherishing our spouses or our friends or our children or our parents, cherishing that relationship in such a way that Christ is on display. That Christ is on display. If we look at the purpose of marriage in Scripture, you know, uh, the whole purpose is to put a spotlight on Jesus. Think of Paul's writings in Ephesians 5. He wants the husbands to, not just to love their wives, to love their wives as Christ loved the church. Well, how did he do that? He died. He laid his life down and died so that she could be more beautiful, more holy, more radiant than she already is. Husbands are to point their wives to Jesus. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Why? Because it's a picture of our relationship and our union with Christ. It's putting the spotlight on Him. And not only do we help each other see Jesus in marriage, we help the world see Jesus by looking at our marriages to see the mutual self-giving love and grace and trust. And a godly marriage is one of the greatest testimonies this world has to Christ. The real joy in marriage is not just companionship or children or sex. It is seeing and reveling in Jesus. 
together. That's the real joy in marriage. Now, one of the chief reasons why so many of our marriages are strained is because we thought we married our Savior and they let us down. We thought we married Jesus and they were going to fix our world and get and bring all of our dreams, you know, make them all come true. But instead, we married a sinner. And we did. We're sinners marrying sinners. That's what we got. But our job is therefore to point each other as sinner to our Savior. There's only one Savior. It's not your spouse. It's Jesus. And in him there is much joy in marriage. He's the one who rescues us, who satisfies us, who holds us safely in his hand. So, are we enjoying and cultivating our marriages, not just for our own joy, but for our joy in Jesus? And are we letting others in on that party? Again, we're not adding anything to our lives. We are making the most of our marriages for Jesus' sake and for the sake of his gospel. So we enjoy God's good provision. We enjoy our marriages. Third, we make the most of our lives for God by working hard. By working hard. That's what we see in verse 10. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. Or as Edward said, resolve to live with all my might while I do live. This is what we spend the bulk of our day doing anyway. Punching in, doing our work. This is, this is so much of, of what our life revolves around. So we're not talking about adding a job, you know, uh, becoming a missionary in addition to a teacher or an accountant or a waitress. Now God might call some of us to, to do that or even to quit our day jobs and go into vocational service for Him. But, but most of us, our mission field is our job. It is our family. It is our neighbors. But in this case here, it is our, our, our work. So are we trashing it? Are we going through the motions every day as a mediocre employee, keeping one eye on the clock and the other eye on the door? Are we treasuring it? Are we turning it into a trophy? Are we worshiping our job as the source of our joy and our security and our achievement, burning ourselves out in order to make it to the next step? Or do we believe that our future is secure in Christ, that He has given us all we need and that He will give us everything when He returns so that we are free to rest in Him and to serve Him by working hard, by being good employees for the glory of God. What does it look like to love your boss? I mean, those words usually do not go in the same sentence, love and boss. What does that look like? Does your boss know you love them? What does it look like to love your colleagues? To love your clients or your customers? How about being the best employee you can be? How about showing the character of Christ and the grace of God? Somebody does something wrong to you. Do you respond like the world responds or... Are you responding out of the mercy and grace that you've experienced from God? How about acknowledging when you've done something wrong? Owning it, telling the truth. How, how do we show, how do we show our love for God and for one another as employees? How about giving a reason for the hope that we have? 
that Jesus is the reason that we can, you know, because our hope and our salvation are secure in Him, because He gives us everything we need and everything that we want, we're free to lay our lives down. We're free to lose our reputation, to lose that promotion, to put someone else in front of us, because we have all we need in Jesus. And to give the reason for that hope. If God is for us, who can be against us if we're safe in his hand? Again, we're not adding anything. We're redeeming what we're already doing for Jesus and his purposes. We're working hard, resting in God and bearing witness to Christ in order to make much of him. Life is a gift and we only get one under the sun. If we are in Jesus, we know that God's hand is for us. As Paul puts it in Romans 8, that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We rest securely in God's hand. And so therefore we're free to enjoy life and to make the most of this gift for God's sake and for the gospel. So may every meal remind us that we've been invited to the last and best of all banquets when the Lord returns. May every sweet relationship we have remind us of an intimacy that we cannot begin to imagine on the wedding day of Christ and his bride. May every honest day's work bring us one day closer to our eternal rest in the Lord. And may every God-centered party anticipate the heavenly celebration that will never end. May God be pleased to make much of his name through his people. In Jesus, we ask it, Lord. Amen.